0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. My name is Kenneth Anderson. I'm your host tonight. Our guest, our first guest, will be Mary Ellen Barnes, who runs a non 12 step treatment program in the Los Angeles area. Our second guest will be James Gerich from uh, Leap Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And we're starting with the show right now with Mary Ellen Barnes. Uh, Mary Ellen, tell us a little bit about what you do with your non-STEP treatment program.
1: Well, we use more of the cognitive behavioral therapy approach and also some motivational interviewing and replacement therapy, I call it. You know, basically what we look at is what's not working in your life what are you telling yourself that keeps you stuck where you are? The little lies we all tell ourselves that let us go where we want to go. So with the CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy, we work on getting you to reframe all of those things so that you're not just kind of blindly following along, doing what you always did and wondering why you're not getting better results. And then we look at basically substituting things. You know, you can't just do what you always did. If you always, you know, drive past the same liquor store and stop there and get your your bottle of wine or whatever it is that you like or your vodka and go home and sit down in front of the TV and start drinking, and you're going to continue to do those exact same patterns. You're going to drive by the liquor store and then go home and sit down in front of the TV and you hope that it won't involve Stopping at the liquor store and then going home and drinking that well you have to actually do something different instead you can't just keep doing those same kinds of things so break up your patterns change things around a bit so that you're not just sucked right back into the same behaviors and people don't they're just very unaware of what they're doing so we help people become really aware of all of the things that they're doing kind of on autopilot that are getting them into a lot of trouble, and it works really well,
0: okay, tell us some more things that uh that you do that why um, um don't the twelve steps work really well or are there any problems or uh
1: the t- twelve step programs work well for about i don't know five percent of the population ten percent if you're being really generous with and that's with their own numbers the a a s own numbers. So for the rest of the people out there, the other 90 to 95% should have something that works a little better than that, I always thought. And we're getting around a 70% success rate rather than a 5% success rate. Um, I always tell people, and, and my partner, Dr. Wilson, we always tell people, if you haven't tried AA, you should try it. Because if it works for you, if you're in that small percentage... It's free. It's everywhere. Go for it. Use it. But if you're if you've tried it, and I'd say I would say 95 percent of our clients have actually tried AA and, and maybe been to rehab, it's 12 step, and they don't like it, and it didn't make sense to them, and it didn't work well for them, and so there really should be more programs out here in the world. That do other things for people and give other people choices. But uh, there really aren't. They're just a very, very small group of programs and individuals who are doing non 12 step.
0: Yeah, I've seen estimates that about 95 to 97 percent of rehab facilities in the United States are 12 step, and there's only uh, mm-hmm. 5 or 2 percent, whatever, that, are, that do anything that's different. Yeah. My my personal experience uh, with uh, trying to do the 12 steps was uh, saying I was powerless and that alcohol was powerful. That just made me drink more.
1: It does. It uh, does.
0: I eventually wound up. Research
1: suggests that's the truth. (laughs) Ken, you were were among friends. (laughs) Because, yeah, people, if you think you're powerless, and so if you go to 12-step programs and that's one of the steps, you know, saying you're powerless over alcohol – if you really, truly believe that or come to believe that in the course of, of treatment, um, that is one of the biggest predictors of relapse, that you that you have no power over this. So if you drink, you're just like, you know, stepping down that slippery slope and you might as well go all the way and, and just totally, you know, totally get drunk and, and go on, you know, a week-long binge or something. Um we always tell people, you know, if you have a drink, it's sort of the harm reduction model that you're so familiar with. You know, it's, a lot of people come to us and they, they want to quit drinking. Others say, oh, I just kind of want to cut back. But even if you want to quit drinking and at some point you have a drink, it's a drink. This is not the end of the world. Yes, that's the you know?
0: That sounds a lot like the relapse prevention strategies that Dr. Alan Marlap has talked about. Mm
1: -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I always, I tell people, especially families of uh, people with alcohol abuse problems or alcoholics, that they need to kind of look at it a little bit like weight loss. The whole thing is a process.
2: You Mm -hmm. know, you
1: don't go to treatment and somebody flips the switch and you're cured. It's Mm -hmm. a behavioral change process. And it's not unlike saying, gosh, I've got to lose 40 pounds. And you've got to change your behavior. You've got to change how you eat, what you eat, when you eat, how you exercise. But you've got to do something that's livable. You can't just, like, go on the grapefruit diet for 10 years, you know. You've got to do something Mm -hmm. that's really livable And, you know, you can be going along, and you're losing weight, and you're losing weight, and you're losing weight, and then you get to Thanksgiving. And between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's just nonstop parties with food, and and so you gain a couple pounds. Well, Mm -hmm. goodness, if you've lost 40 and you've gained two over the holidays, you're still 38 pounds down. Exactly. And so what? You know, you get back. January 2nd comes and, or January 1st comes and you say, okay, I gained a little bit during the holidays. I didn't handle that as well as I should have, but I just start in again with my eating plan. And I tell people it's sort of the same with with um, drinking. You know, you can get into a, just be doing beautifully and then you get into some perfect storm of a situation where every Bad thing that could have happened to you that's a trigger happens on the same day in the same hour, and guess what? You have a drink or two.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you learn something from that. Maybe you didn't handle things right. Maybe you weren't paying attention. You know, you kind of got complacent there. Well, all right, pick yourself up and start over again Or, or just start back on track, really. It's not like we don't go with that philosophy that AA does, which is. if you have a drink, you're right back to, you know, day one, hour one, minute mm-hmm, one, mm-hmm. you know. In fact, pick yourself up and say, well, I didn't handle that right. What did I learn from it? Yeah, actually,
0: I think that the uh, mindset of being right back where you started from can be very dangerous, uh, particularly if people are working with opiates instead of uh, yeah. alcohol, for example, because your tolerance will drop so much when you're abstinent obvious. And if you think that you'll be right back where you are and try to shoot the same amount of heroin, you know, oh, that's dose, dangerous, yeah. It's very
1: dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, I think that in some ways 12 step programs do a real disservice. Um, you know, it's it's we had a, a woman in here, a girlfriend of a potential client. She said, "Well, you know, there everything out there is 12 step, it must work." Because, mm-hmm. you know, I was saying, well, you know, it, it's done work for most people. And she says, oh, it must work. It must work. And look at all the programs that are that are 12-step. And, uh, you know, the thing that we always tell people is 12-step programs are an excellent business model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're not an excellent health care model. And you can't confuse the two. <laughs> well,
0: there is no... FDA or its equivalent for chemical dependency treatment programs.
1: That's that's a good point.
0: It's like the old days when people were selling snake oil in, you know, the early 1900s. Um, You know, you could sell anything and you could claim anything. And, you know, if, if you didn't kill everybody, you could always get testimonials from somebody that felt better.
1: Yeah. But, you know, you would think in the era of managed care, when the insurance companies are looking at, you know, not paying for anything and
2: Mm -hmm. they're going to pay
1: for something, they're going to pay for something that works, you know, that they would be looking more closely at that. Well, And they don't seem to be too much. Well, there were some major
0: changes uh, with the insurance companies in the 1990s. Um, I know from my experience, that's when I... Uh, got involved with uh, a couple of treatment programs, and um, I found that um, a lot of people I knew they were going through treatment thirty times, forty times, mm-hmm. fifty yeah, times, yeah. and the insurance was paying and paying, and they weren't changing any. They were getting worse, if anything. And the insurance, at one point, at some point, just said, "You know, we're not going to pay for unlimited treatment that doesn't work. We're going to cut you down to ten days every two years." Or that's typical of what insurance companies to cover these
1: days, I understand. Yeah, but even that, you know, why should they be paying, why should people have to go to treatment for 10 days every two years? They shouldn't have to. If something works, they should be able to get effective help and not have to keep going back and back and back and back like that, even if it is only 10 days every two years. And I know well, I some of the programs mm-hmm. out here, they they still pay for an awful lot of treatment for people. Out where I am in Los Angeles, we have, you know, like the longshoremen. They they have extremely good medical coverage, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, they go off to treatment all the time. You know, it's like a vacation. Yep. Let's go. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> but, well, you know, know interestingly, mm-hmm. go ahead.
0: I know when I was in Minnesota, for example, um, a lot of the railroad tramps would in the winter go to treatment because Mm -hmm. it was warm housing, and, you know, they didn't have warm housing otherwise, so it was a a very expensive way for them to get housed. But, you know, if they just said, I'm freezing, I need housing, they'll say, no, go out and freeze. But if you you said at that time, I need treatment, you could get almost unlimited treatment, you know, and the state was paying for it.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's really terrible. You know, out here, uh, you know, Kaiser Permanente down in San Diego. I mean, we have Kaiser all over the state of California, and, and mm-hmm. Kaiser in San Diego County is now sort of doing an experiment where they are not using any 12-step treatment for their members down there
0: mm-hmm. who are coming
1: for treatment for substance abuse. They're using what we're using, basically, CBT and motivational interviewing and educational stuff, you know. And um I will, I'm really watching it very uh, with a lot of interest because I hope it spreads to the other Kaisers all over California. So it would be very interesting. And if they do it, if they start saying no AA, no 12-step treatment in our facilities, I think that might start kind of leaking out into the general population.
0: That sounds like a really positive uh, move that's taking place there.
1: Yes, it is, and the really strange part of it is that the other Kaiser's all open down California, they haven't, they're not doing it. So it's just, it seems to be just an experiment they're running in uh, San Diego area, which is really interesting. So we will wait and see what comes of that, but um, I think it's a really positive move, and it's about time, you know.
0: Oh, yes. Well, tell us a little bit about motivational interviewing. How does that work and how how do you use that? What's the difference between that and a more traditional approach that you get when you enter a more traditional treatment program?
1: Well, the traditional treatment programs obviously are more your 12-step-based treatment programs where you're working your way through the steps or you're going to AA meetings where they're, you know, sitting around talking about the good old days. (laughs) No, when they were drinking uh, or drugging. Um, With motivational interviewing, you're basically trying to engage people in how should I put it? In what is going to motivate you to change? So you know, you're interviewing them in a way that gets them talking about what what's brought them to treatment. Why are they seeking treatment? What's going on with them that You're trying to get them to basically motivate themselves instead of, you know, oh, I got a DUI and I had to come, you know, that kind of thing. You're looking at more internal things and, um, you know, they're more internal motivators because the external motivators don't last very long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As soon as you do finish your DUI class and you get your license back or whatever, that's gone, you know. And so you've got to have developed some internal motivations to help keep you going because you know alcohol or drugs these are a coping mechanism. Oh yeah, exactly.
0: This is a way
1: this is a way that you cope with loneliness, boredom, stress, whatever and so the whole point of it is to get you to start verbalizing the things that are motivating you or at least you know, in, in as the counselor and talking with them, getting them to start looking at some of the positives that might motivate you should you just choose to think about these a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of an interesting process of kind of leading people through an exploratory kind of deal, you know, to where they can start saying, well, yeah, you know, I don't feel very good when I, you know, every day I just sort of, I want to feel better, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing so it's it's um it's different from cognitive behavioral therapy in that in cognitive behavioral therapy, you're really getting people to change their beliefs about things so that their feelings change about them, you know 'cause you know you've got your feelings and mm-hmm. you've got your beliefs and you got your you know the things that you're doing, and it's really easy to change your Beliefs it's pretty easy to change your beliefs it's pretty easy to change your actual actions, but you can't kind of directly change your feelings, so you kind of approach it from the other direction with actions and feel, actions and beliefs, and that then drives the feelings okay. Does that make any sense of my explaining it very poorly here? Yes, it makes a lot of
0: sense so um I know more traditional. Treatments. They talk about the the need to break down big egos. Do you find that to to be the case at all? Or?
1: No, not particularly. And I have a we get a number of clients with big egos. You know? <laughs> um, it isn't about tearing people down. Um, you know, we ha- I work with clients who are enormously successful men and women. You know. Mm-hmm. make lots of money, are very, very successful in whatever their profession is. And some of them have pretty darn big egos.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: you know, it doesn't... And others don't have much ego, but it's not about breaking down their egos and, and you know, humbling them particularly. Um, I don't think tearing people down in any way is helpful towards getting them... Give up sort of maladaptive coping mechanisms. To be honest with you, you know, I think they need all the strength they can get, and you know, and being their whole person is a plus, not a minus.
0: Mm-hmm. So confrontation is just not uh, is not therapeutic.
1: It is. I don't think it is. It's not therapeutic with with my clients, I mean, I like people to be honest with themselves, you know, and when they're going to sit here and say, well, it's not really a big problem. And I'm like, you've had three DUIs. Come on, this is a problem. You know, one DUI I'm willing to forgive, you know. (laughs) but Three DUIs says maybe you've got a problem. Let's look at it a little bit. So, no, I I don't think that being real confrontational with people, you can gently point out the truth of their, you know, of what they're doing because a lot of people
0: have
1: gotten into a lot of trouble.
0: Yeah, I think people know that, you know, alcohol is causing them some problems when it is. And, you know, but if you say immediately, you shake your finger in their face and say you must stop immediately, you just get people to fight back. But yeah, yeah. Approach, uh approach, more of a motivational interviewing approach and say, Well, are there any things you don't like about alcohol? Has it caused any problems? Are there any bad things related to it? You know, people are pretty quick to come up and say, well, yeah, I got these three DUIs and that really sucks and it's not good.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think it helps more when people see me as somebody who cares about them and wants to work with them and help them, not somebody who's there to beat them up and shame them, you know. I don't think that gets you very far with people.
0: Yeah, I have to agree that that's my experience, too, having been through uh, treatment. um, Mm -hmm. I was through uh, two different treatment programs. The first one combined cognitive behavioral therapies with 12 Steps. Mm uh I did get some really good techniques from the cognitive behavioral therapies I learned there. And then the second one was pure 12-step, and honestly, it was not helpful at all, actually, that, uh, that yeah. led me to drink more and it led me to actually drink so dangerously that, you know, I was afraid I was going to die from my withdrawal wow. I had to check into yeah. detox and get volume, and while I was sitting in detox, I said, you know, I just have to make a break with the 12-steps because this is not working for me.
1: Yeah, well, and you sound like like our clients, you know, they just, they try it, they go through treatment or they go to AA meetings and they're like, this is making me want to drink more, this is just not working for me, and then they may not know what to do. It takes them a long time to find, you know, how you find us or anybody else out there because they don't really know what to look for, you know, and there are very few of us around, so... They mm-hmm, mm-hmm. have a hard time finding, you know, and they they start writing in things in Google like not AA. <laughs> you know? yeah. Really, that's, you know. We have some people, because we can usually see what a lot of the search, you know, it'll be anything but AA. <laughs> 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 it's funny. But, um, yeah, you know, so it takes a while for people to to find us or you or anybody, you know, because they, they kind of have to figure out what terminology to use and, and, and what to, even though we try to, you know, put the right keywords in so that people can find us, but I, people say, oh, I looked and looked and looked and looked, and finally I fa- started finding, so.
0: I know. I wound up adding lots of different pages to our website with lots of different titles. Mm-hmm. Trying to think of what people might search for. Would you search for safer drinking, for reduced drinking, for cutting back? I have yeah, so-
1: yeah yeah it's is it's hard to to cover everything when you're doing all your optimization and and all but you know it's people are getting i think more sophisticated and we're getting more sophisticated at it and so it it's um we try to be as as available as possible you know as you do and as easy to find as possible, but a lot of people still don't know what to search for. But everybody, you know, more and more of us are showing up, and that's, I think, a a good thing. So I think 10 years from now it will be a different world for people looking for treatment.
0: I think so. Uh,
1: I hope so. I hope so. Uh, Yeah, because it's really, you know, it's really terrible when people, especially, you know, when people are in crisis and their families are looking for stuff and they're stressed and they want something right now if they don't have the luxury of just spending days and weeks and, you know, calmly searching the Internet for stuff until they, you know, trip across words like non-12-step or harm reduction because they don't mm-hmm, know those words, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Hi, Mary Ellen. I see that uh, our next caller is getting ready to okay. come in. So thank you very much for being our guest. I'm going Oh, to you're put very you, welcome. I'm going to put you on mute now. and. Uh, okay. I'm going to do a little blurb. And uh. okay, my name is Kenneth Anderson. I represent the Hams Harm Reduction Network. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a harm reduction-based support group for people who drink alcohol, free of charge, lay-led. We have a book, How to Change Your Drinking. You have hamsnetwork.org/book, sold by Amazon. We also have uh, we also take donations if you want to support our calls go to handsnetwork.org slash donate I'm going to bring our next caller on the air right now all right hello uh, this is James I'm going to mispronounce your last name could you give me your last name please is this uh, my person from Leap
2: yes are you talking to me?
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, oh oh I have uh, this is Stan, this is Stanton Peel on the oh, line. Sorry. Of, are you
0: talking to me? Sorry, we're too early for you. I wanna get back to you at the end. Sorry. Here we go. Hello, is this uh James Gir from
3: Leap? Hey, yes, Jim Girach. How are you, Ken?
0: I'm doing very well. Um, Your organization is Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and I know your motto is cops say to legalize drugs. Could you tell us about your organization?
3: Well, sure. I'm a former drug prosecutor in Chicago, I should say, at the outset, and and I am opposed uh, generally to the the use of drugs. Uh, Drugs uh, can be harmful, and uh, so for many years I was a prosecutor and uh, did my best to Remove drugs from society and make it safe. Uh, but the fact of the matter, after uh, some 40 years of practicing law and seeing what's happened in America, I've come to the conclusion, the same as, as this organization, LEAP, has, that the war on drugs doesn't work. That, in fact, uh, because uh, prohibition increases the price of drugs and uh, makes them the most valuable commodity on the face of the earth, we end up with uh, more people going into the drug business and we end up with more drugs available, stronger drugs, uncontrolled, unregulated, uh, that that oftentimes uh, are are being sold and consumed by kids. So uh, we started out with the magnanimous purpose of trying to save the kids from drugs, and instead we put more drugs everywhere, uh, making the world a much more dangerous place for our kids. So uh, law enforcement against prohibition, Uh, is a collection of people who have come to the same conclusion that I have. Uh, and, And these are people who were in the front lines of the drug war. So we've got undercover narcotics agents. We've got former prosecutors such as myself. We have former judges, prison wardens, former DEA agents, border patrol agents, people who fought in the front lines of the war on drugs who have concluded when the drug war doesn't work, it makes it worse instead of better. Mm-hmm. And and secondly, um, uh, that the war on drugs really makes just about any crisis you want to talk about worse. Uh, it makes the crime problem, the prison problem, the gang problem, the gun problem, the trade deficit problem, the corruption of the kids, the corruption of the police, pe- people dying of overdose deaths, people who are adic- addicted to drugs, who are afraid to go to a doctor, uh, people using dirty needles because we can't uh, send a uh, drug-tolerant message of, uh, uh, of, here, come get a clean needle. Um, so really, you pick the crises, the war on drugs makes it worse. Terrorism, uh, the, the terrorist groups, the, they make mm-hmm. their money in the drug business.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So LEAP is an organization uh, made up of, of front-line drug warriors who are now uh, pacifists. <laughs> We no longer believe that, that the answer is to prosecute and incarcerate uh, not only the country but a good portion of the world. Uh, I mentioned one of the crises is the prison crises, and we've turned yeah. America, the land of the free, into the home of the prisons. Uh, with yeah. with uh, 2.3 million people locked up behind bars, and, of course, every time you do that, uh, you end up destroying some family who was missing a father or a mother or a child.
0: Yeah, so these are essentially victimless crimes. Just uh, u- Using drugs is uh, basically a victimless crime, isn't
3: it? Well, there, there's when I was in law school and, and studying criminal law, they said there are basically two kinds of uh, uh, prohibitions in life. One one is is a crime that was really prohibited by the divine and says you're not supposed to kill the other guy, you're not supposed to steal the other guy's property, you're not supposed to break in his house. And, and, and those are, are really... Uh, victim-full crimes. Crimes yes. where there really is somebody who's being hurt, who's not consenting to the crime. And then the second type of crime that we can have are, are, are crimes that we make a crime. So if if you gamble, well, you're violating the rule and, and you should go to prison or jail or be fined. If you consume alcohol, we've prohibited it because we're going to keep you safe from alcohol. So we prohibit it. Now, now we're now we doing this in, in Prohibition too in uh, making so many people uh, a criminal because they consensually decide to buy or sell drugs. It's, it's foolhardy. It, it causes crime, fills the prisons, takes money away from schools, uh, and basically accomplishes everything we don't want to do.
0: So where did these drug laws come from?
3: Well, uh, frankly, do-gooders, oftentimes uh people who really do care about other people, who really do want to see violence uh, reduced, who really would like to see the world a more sober place, uh, who have said, well, we're going to help make it a, a safer place for you. You know, We're not going to rely on you to decide not to smoke or drink or use drugs. We're going to help you by outlawing them. We're going to make it hard for you to get them. We're going to make it hard to do money because we're going to intentionally increase the price to the point where you can't make any money in the business that you're trying to go in if you want to be a drug dealer. Well, and of course, anybody who knows anything about economics knows that as you increase the price of something, you increase the supply of it, making it more available. So although good intention at the outset, the war on drugs spews out crises uh, without end. And it is really because of the war on drugs that that organizations that call themselves harm reduction organizations or that favor harm reduction. Well, what harm is there to reduce? The the, the harm that there is to reduce is the harm that has been caused by a drug policy that accomplishes these harms.
0: So what can we do as citizens uh, if we want to uh, change things and make things better?
3: Well, I used to think that change came from the top uh, uh, and worked its way down, a trickle-down goodness. <laughs> uh, but it's not really the way it works. The, the people of America and the people of the world said we want a drug war. We want to get tough on these drug dealers. We want to clamp down on it. Uh, we want to get tough on three-time loser laws and putting people behind prisons. So the people demanded the war on drugs, and the politicians gave it to us. Every president of the United States, from Nixon until now, has been in favor of the war on drugs. Because to a politician, the war on drugs is the means to collect votes, because the people have asked for it. That's what they want. That's what the politicians have given us. The answer is the reverse. The answer is for the people to be marching on their state capitals on, on, on the, in Washington, D.C., uh, in the city halls, the county boardrooms, the prisons saying that we want enough of, of this drug war. We, we, we're through with it. We want to end the drug war. Right now we have a fight just getting medical marijuana passed for people who are sick and dying in our state legislatures. But across the country, in some 15 states plus the District of Columbia, by referendum and sometimes by legislative action of an individual state, we now have medical marijuana legalized in 15 states throughout the country. We need medical marijuana and for that matter, marijuana outright legalized in 50 states. And, and, and the action should come from the states, not from the federal government uh, issuing some edict or mandate saying that medical marijuana is going to be all right. We should turn it back over to the states to let the individual state legislatures experiment to determine what is the best policy to best control particular substances. Substances are more dangerous than others. Uh, so in one state, uh, they may say, well, we're going to keep uh, and continue to outlaw everything. Another state may say, well, we're just going to have medical marijuana. Another mm-hmm. state may say, well, we're going to legalize uh, marijuana, period, so that you don't go to jail for, regardless of, of how many plants you, you've got in your backyard. Uh, so the states need the freedom to decide what the regulation should be, and we'll see which state has the best policy for a particular drug, and then we replicate that across the nation
0: and then around the world. Well, that's actually what the Constitution says, isn't it? The Tenth Amendment says that any powers not explicitly granted to the federal government should be reserved for the states or for the people.
3: That's what the Tenth Amendment says. It's a good one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the drug laws are really unconstitutional, aren't they?
3: Well, I have a friend who serves with me on the... LEAP Board of Directors, who is a, a retired judge in Brazil, and uh, she had recently come to Chicago and uh, had a chance to meet her. Uh, she's famous for having declared uh, the laws unconstitutional uh, related to drugs in, in the state of Brazil where someone is consuming drugs or has a small amount for personal use, and and I think the same argument here could be made here in the United States. Um, but, you know, we have a, a shrinking uh, uh, Bill of Rights uh, thanks mm-hmm. to our mm-hmm. war on drugs. Uh, and basically, it's a war on drugs exception to the Bill of Rights.
0: Yes, very much so. And we have so many people in prison now. There's more. I believe there's more people in prison in the United States than ever before in history.
3: Uh, that, that's true. Actually, there are more African Americans in, in prison in the United States now than, than uh, we had uh, during the height of... Uh, Uh, of slavery and and of course there's great racial disparity in in who ends up in prison if you're poor and black or brown uh, you have a much greater chance of ending up in jail for the same drug crime a study was recently finished here in the Chicago area in Cook County and if you're black you have an eight times better chance of going to prison uh, than than a white uh, fella or or girl Um, and and that's just uh, for the same drug crime and that's a ridiculous disparity. Uh, there was a study, a study a couple of years back that said that in, in Illinois it was 55 to one, was the ratio. 55 black folks go to prison for one white uh, charged with the same crime.
0: That's a tremendous disparity. That's just uh, yeah. an outrage, really.
3: Well, uh, there's there's no question about it. the, the, the people in, in in minority and poor communities. Uh, you know it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, the war on drugs is a redistribution of the wealth program because it takes money from the richer communities and, and infuses that money into poorer uh, communities. So in Chicago, you used to be driving down the Dan Ryan Expressway and you get to the Project Building, you, you pull off, you drive through the, dry, the drug drive-through, like, like a, a McDonald's hamburger stand, buy your drugs, you get back on, you're on the expressway and you're gone. So the money was coming from affluent uh, folks into the poor community, so it was like manna from the heaven, uh, bringing money in. But the problem is it also brought the death and the destruction and encouraged kids to drop out of school, to go into the drug business. Then we got the kids fighting over who's going to make this lucrative money. Um, and then we got people addicted to drugs, and they have no means to get it except go to rehab, and many don't want to, of course, because they're addicts. Uh, yes. Or or try and get in a rehab program, which is often unavailable. So where else can they go but to the drug dealer?
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
3: it, it's just uh, the war on drugs just rains down crises on America and the world without end. And it doesn't matter how many prisons we build. Doesn't matter how much money we divert into prisons. It doesn't matter whether we hire Clinton's hundred thousand police officers. Or in, in Chicago, we have a new mayor. Instead of Mayor Daley, it's going to be Rahm Emanuel, who, who apparently helped come up with this hundred thousand more policemen uh, strategy for Clinton. And he says we're going to hire a hundred thousand. We're going to hire a thousand more uh, cops in Chicago uh, because the people in some neighborhoods are such a, in such an uproar they want the National Guard called out. Well. It's the same thing everywhere in the world. The, the drugs are more available. Drugs are uncontrolled and unregulated, more dangerous, more available to kids, more people going to prisons, more violence, more, more of our limited assets going into unproductive things of locking people up, watching them, making sure they don't do something wrong, and, and we can't even keep the drugs out of in prison, uh, prisons in this country. There isn't a prison in the world where there aren't illicit drugs. It yes. just shows the the folly of it all.
0: Yes, and I've heard uh, it reported that in grade schools, it's much easier to get drugs than to get alcohol.
3: Sure, if if you're a minor and you want to get a, uh, a, a six pack, it's easy to find somebody to go buy the buy the six pack, six pack, uh, or, or oftentimes, uh, or I'm sorry, I've reversed it here. It, it, it well, I mean, if you can get an adult to buy this stuff, well, you could still get it, but it's mm-hmm. not easy because if you go in. Um, You know, they get better at the driver's license, so you can't falsify the identification as easily as you used to do some years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So people, uh, you know, they get carded. You you have to go during the hours of business that it's open. But Mm -hmm. who is it that sets the age limit to buy or sell drugs? Well, the cartels. What drugs will be sold? Who who decides that? The drug gangs and the cartels decide what Mm -hmm. drugs. Mm -hmm. How strong are they going to be? Well, the drug gangs and the drug cartels get to decide that. Why? Because when government prohibits something, ironically, they give up the right to control and regulate it. You can't say, you know, heroin's illegal because uh, it's harmful to you, and we, the government, are going to protect you from the heroin, so it's illegal. Um, But if you decide to disregard this government prohibition, do not exceed the recommended dosage, which is on the label. Mm -hmm. You know You give up the right to to require something on the label. You give up the right uh, for consistency in manufacture. You give up the right to say that uh, this drug is is of such and such a purity. And we make them put uh, how strong the alcohol is on the outside of the bottle so that people have some idea of what they're drinking and consuming, but we we don't do that when it comes to drugs.
0: Yes. Uh, I understand some countries like Switzerland have had success with uh, heroin maintenance programs where addicts uh, can register and get heroin to maintain their habit um, when they're they're not successful with other ways of quitting.
3: Well, that's definitely the case. The Swiss heroin uh, experiment has been a great success and has now been replicated in other parts of the world. Uh, they started out with some 2,000 addicts that came in, and, and the government was saying, geez, you know, you're, you're making your living by crime. Some 83% of the people that came into the program were making their living from crime. They were in bad health. They were at risk uh, or had already contracted AIDS or hepatitis. Uh, um, th- they weren't able to take care of their families. They were spending every waking minute trying to figure out, how am I going to get the money for the next fix? And so they said, here, you guys come to us, the government, you can consume this heroin on premise, under clean sanitary conditions, with dosages so that you'll know what it is, um, under medically supervised uh, conditions. The, the price is six bucks. If you can't afford the six bucks, it's for free. But but don't go hit your neighbor over the head. Don't steal from somebody to get the money. Don't turn to prostitution. Don't don't rob and steal from your family. Um, so that now we had people who were able to. Uh, Number one, maintain a job. Number two, take care of their family. Number three, not spend every waking minute trying to figure out how am I going to get the money for the next fix. We deprived the drug dealers of the benefit of their trade. Uh, and It ended up with the health of the addicts being improved. Most of them ended up quitting crime. One of the most startling things of the program uh, was that many of the people of their own volition stopped using drugs entirely. A completely uh, surprising outcome Mm -hmm. from the test. Mm -hmm. So, So really, one of the strange things about drug policy is that the harder you push the prohibition, the worse the problem becomes. The more you increase the penalties, the worse the problem becomes. The more you try to drive up the price to prevent people from using it, the worse the problem becomes. So in drug in drug war, in, in drug policy, everything works in reverse. Figure out what seems to be a good sensible idea, and then don't do it. You think it's a good idea to put anti drug advertising on TV and radio and billboards, and and what is it? It turns out to be an, a drug advertisement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we we created a national glue sniffing epidemic in this country years ago because a couple of kids. Uh, We're smelling glue, uh, probably innocently, and and end up becoming uh, intoxicated, overcome by the fumes, and they're rushing to the emergency room. Well, nobody heard about huffing or sniffing things. And a couple of reporters got hold of it in Denver, uh, Denver, Colorado, wrote an article. They interviewed the emergency people. Oh, this is terrible. It will destroy your nervous system. It's bad for you. Absolutely it is. Mm-hmm. But by putting it into the newspaper, within the space of a year to two years, they had created a national epidemic of glue sniffing where the kids learned how to do it, what to do, where to do it. And so then they started passing ordinances to say, we've got to keep the glue behind the counter. You can't buy glue without the permission or accompaniment of your uh, your parent or, or uh, adult caretaker. Um, and, and it's the same thing we're now doing with Sudafed. Mm-hmm. Right. In order to get rid, rid of the ephedrine that, that's used to to create the meth, uh, you know, we're going to save the people from this thing. So no, you can't have your cold medicine. You you can only buy it in limited quantities. You got you got to get it uh, from behind the counter. In Indiana, they I was I was in the the legislature the day they were debating a new bill that 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 was wondering whether they should uh, just do better tracking of where people were buying. Uh, their their uh, pseudo fed medications, or or whether they should make it a prescription medicine, uh, or, or whether they should ban uh, med- cold medicine that had that concoction in it. So it's just completely a, another replication. It's it's like if we learned anything from history, we've forgotten it.
0: Yes, but but leap,
3: LEAP speakers, cops say com is a place where your listeners can go to and, and help join the fight. They, they can take an active part in help accelerating the day that we end this ridiculous drug war that's causing so much harm. And, and uh, you know, I often say there's another way to get to it. If you just say LEAP.CC, mm-hmm. Law, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition is LEAP, L-E-A-P. Dot cc. But if you just put in leap, it'll take you to our website. You just put it in the search engine. Leap, join. It doesn't cost anything. Become a member and become a spokesperson for for ending the harm, for for reducing the harm being caused by this idiotic American-propelled war on drugs.
0: Well, I've been a supporter of uh, your organization since I found out you existed which was about 2 years ago I was at the harm reduction conference in Miami and I saw <laughs> you guys had a table and I said what is this I never heard of this <laughs> and I started talking to the man there and he started explaining it to me I said well yes obviously this is this is so obvious
3: sure you know it's it, it's it it is funny because you you'd asked earlier well you know how did we get into this predicament many religious organizations have been in favor of this prohibition, we have a couple of famous priests here in Chicago that have helped lead this intolerance this zero tolerance just say no um campaign and it was all done with an you know an altruistic purpose behind it to try to help people to try to save people to try to protect people to try to make society safer
0: mm-hmm. but
3: but we've done the exact opposite we've put in place a drug policy that's an attractive nuisance to children, that mm-hmm. takes a kid who's in school and, and the kid sees, well, the guy who's getting ahead in life is the one who's doing what you're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Why should I stay in school when the guy who's quitting school is making more money than I would ever make if I finished school? So so now, now... You take some innocent kid, and the drug dealer says, uh, Hey kid, you're 10 years old. Uh, you look like a responsible kid. How'd you like to make 50 bucks? This kid could come from a good home. Uh, he could have the best of preachers, the best of teachers, a good family. And for 50 bucks, this drug dealer has put his foot on the scale, pulled this kid off the straight and narrow. And has him, and, and what he does, he tells the kid, uh, you know, we're going to be doing some business in the car over here. If you see the police, uh, an unmarked squad or a car with an M plate on it, then stop bouncing the ball. And so for 50 bucks, this kid has been co-opted. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so now he's proven himself to be a, a good youngster uh, who follows the rules and kept the, the drug dealing protected. So so now because he's a minor, we're going to have him carry the drugs. We'll have him carry the guns uh And, and so we 'll make our deals, and then he 's the carrier well now he 's making a hundred bucks a week or two hundred bucks or whatever and, and And so we have taken this kid, even if he 's from good circumstances and tempted him to do the wrong thing we we then we corrupt the our police officers, where police officers are supposed to be under current laws arresting and putting people in jail for drug use when in fact oftentimes uh they they have a favorite team they're protecting this gang. As opposed to the other gang, and and they're getting a kickback in return, or or they're they're taking the the drugs from the uh, the drug dealers and, and and is distributing it through their own outlets and own uh, sources. In Chicago, the guy who's in charge of the evidence vault ends up uh, retiring early and and gets caught when he starts buying all these real, uh, buildings and a, and a Bentley automobile and keeping girls and etc. <laughs> And and he gets arrested, now he's in prison. The Mexican drug czar is in prison. The the guy who was the head of gang crimes in Chicago is in prison. The Lorton Correctional Center in in Washington, D.C., 25 years ago I'm out there, and 12 people in one cracker arrested and on the way to jail. Lawyers going to jail for for delivering marijuana into the Cook County Jail, the largest prison system, not prison, but county jail in the country with with 10,000 inmates.
0: Yeah, that's uh, the way it Cali- goes.
3: California, 171,000 people behind bars. Texas, over 100,000 people. Illinois, 50,000 people behind bars. 46 okay. of the states that can't pay the bills.
0: Yeah, I'd like to thank you very much for being our <laughs> guest. We're, we're going to run on to our next segment very soon. Thank you very much, Jim, for coming to us and talking to us about LEAP. It's leap.cc, lea C Everyone, all our friends out there, we hope you visit the website.
3: Thank you, Jim. Ken. Thanks. Thank you so much.
0: Okay, we'd like to do a little blurb again for the website and the book. Uh, Hamsnetwork.org. The book is How to Change Your Drinking: A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. Hamsnetwork.org/slash/book. It's available on Amazon. You can donate at Hamsnetwork.org/slash/donate. We're free of charge support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking. Uh, Stanton Peel is, um, now to help us close up. Stanton, are you there?
2: I'm here, Ken. What a great show you've had. You're really the, uh, go-to place for resources on information about reforming treatment, reforming drug policy, drug laws, and how we deal with the whole substance crisis. um, you've really packed it all together in this show. What I thought I'd talk about tonight is trying to relate the two disparate parts of your program. Uh, I thought Dr. Barnes was really appealing. You could see why she's a good clinician. She just has a non-intrusive manner. Um, she kind of sneaks up on people, you, you know, putting a point mm-hmm. forward without attacking them. And combining that with Mr. Girok, who just is overcome by the irrationality of how we approach drugs. And the remarkable thing is it doesn't matter whether an administration is Democratic or Republican. They do the same thing. And it doesn't matter that it never works. It doesn't matter that we have the same drug policies in place for year after year and decade after decade, and yet we still pursue the same exact policies. Um, And in a way, Dr. Barnes was saying something similar, and you also... 90% or more of treatment programs continue to be 12-step programs, even though obviously they don't have a, to say the least, they don't have a definitive positive effect. Um, Nobody really believes that that drug abuse and addiction and alcoholism are declining, and yet nobody seems propelled by that realization to actually suggest that we try something different. And the way I'd like to unify both of those points is by pointing out that we have such deep underlying attitudes and irrationality towards drugs and alcohol that they really sustain both of these mismovements, both of these uh, pursuits of the wrong direction. And in in that sense, the disease model, which is carried over to the drug war by saying this. Drugs and alcohol conquer you. Human beings don't consume drugs and alcohol. We've been hitting so hard for not only years and decades, really centuries, on the idea that human beings are not capable of modifying or dealing with their substance experiences. And that's become its own truth. That becomes something that we can't ever gainsay. And so when drug policy people say something like, why don't we change how we deal with drugs instead of making an effort to ban them from every corner of the United States, every corner of the globe, which, of course, is crazy and impossible. Um, Instead of thinking that way and and, and thinking about how people can be, improved in their ability to resist and regulate their substance use. and all, I just saw a new headline saying um, there's a new alarm out on uh, all the new kinds of uh, synthetic drugs, uh, hmm. which, of course, has to happen. There has to be a constant industry producing them. And so the disease model, as well as polluting our treatment system, as you and Dr. Barnes were describing, by creating this attack the drug, attack the alcohol, and, in a way, attack the addict in treatment, carries over to our whole policy outlook. The reason we can't overcome our irrationality towards drugs in terms of policy is because we've created this shibboleth, this idea that drugs are so overwhelming. So one constant debate that I have with Ethan Nadelman, my old friend, he's looking to draw in the disease and the 12 step in the AA industry into drug policy reform. Mm. And I feel that's the fool's mission, that that can never, ever happen. I know, for example, he's always boosting um, um, William Cope Moyers, Bill Moyers' son, who's a publicity director, maven for Hazleton, as being somebody who's willing to entertain drug policy reform. And then I recently saw him uh, being interviewed and saying he's totally against any reform of marijuana regulation. Because from somebody like his perspective, look what mm-hmm. drugs did to him. Drugs are anathema. Drugs are a, a monster on the face of the earth. We have to keep them at bay no matter what we do. Uh, and then it's not until we change our basic attitudes towards drugs and alcohol, until we put them into a more human-sized dimension until we recognize our own power as individuals in society to deal with these things, that we'll ever be able to change our larger laws and policies. So I just wanted to say, Ken, in that sense, the two disparate parts of your show, uh, where Dr. Barnes was talking about how ineffective and counterproductive this whole not only 12-step disease model is, but how it. it pushes out and prevents us from adopting more effective treatment, it's really it's the same set of attitudes that produce the kind of irrationality and failure that Mr. Gearock was describing. Mm-hmm. Do you, did you? Uh, is that how you put this great show together? Did you see the link between those two in those terms, or, or how did you think about it?
0: Um, I wasn't looking for people you- like... I I didn't want to do uh, two people who were going to be talking about the same thing, such as alcohol treatment. I tried to get a little variety, but, I mean, I have networked with so many people, and uh, everybody out there kind of has a similar foundation that they're working from. It's very closely related, whether it's a non-12-step treatment, whether it's a harm reduction program, whether it's drug policy. They all seem to have a similar base.
2: Mr. Girak did mention harm reduction, he did mention a non-coercive approach to treatment, so you can see where those linkages are. So, by the way, I see if you're going to have a variety of guests, you're a little bit like Ed Sullivan. Do you remember him?
0: Oh, I remember Ed You know, he didn't Ed just Sullivan have.
2: Well, you yeah. know, well, had a whole different. Are you going to have a, a juggler on later and a ventriloquist or I, no? I'm looking not
0: for Topo Gigio. If I can find Topo Gigio.
2: Uh huh. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, at the end, I'll just sing a few songs and we'll we'll call it a night. So, yeah, you you see that really there are a lot of repetitive themes coming from your two guests, despite they're covering very different bailiwicks. You know, Dr. Uh, Barnes is dealing with treating addicts, and Mr. Girock is dealing with police and policy and law and street addiction, and yet they really hit a lot of, as you point out, similar themes. So let me just say again, A fabulous show, and your show is going to do something, I hope, to spread what I see to be increasing awareness and discontent with the irrationality of the current approaches that we have in both treatment and policy areas.
0: Thank you very much. Is it time
2: for me to start my singing uh, now? (laughs) Uh, Oh, solo me. Oh, that's next time?
0: That's next time. Uh, next time, our guest will be Dr. Amanda Ryman, who will talk about cannabis substitution for alcohol dependence and other drug addictions. Also, Dr. Ed Wilson, who also does a non-12 step treatment. He actually is Mary Ellen Barnes' partner. Uh, once again, our our website is hamsnetwork.org. Our book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. Stanton will also be back to close the show for us next week. at Perhaps we'll have you sing.